Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, I am Joe Lawler, and welcome to Hold the Line. Hold the line. In this episode, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Nick Benger. You may already know of Nick from his excellent general dog training podcast, which is called Dog Talk with Nick Benger. I highly recommend that you check it out and subscribe. It's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. And you can actually find it on iTunes, but Nick also has a website for it at nickbenger.com. Nick has a degree in canine behavior and training from the University of Hull. And he is now a force-free pet dog trainer based in Bristol, UK. His training organization is called Bark Play Teach, and the website for that is BarkPlayTeach.com. Nick is not a gun dog trainer, although he does own a Labrador, uh, but he takes a special interest in the subject of engagement. And this is a huge subject for force-free gun dog training, I think. If you can't engage your dog in a rural environment, if your dog is totally ignoring you and more into scent or exploring the environment, um, then you can't really train your dog to be a gun dog or to do anything else either. Um, and so many people starting out in gun dog work really struggle with this issue, getting their dog to focus on them when they're in distracting places. So I wanted to get Nick on the show to chat about it because I think it's the bedrock of of everything, really. Um, Nick is actually writing a book on the subject of engagement at the moment, and he's got a free engagement guide, which you can download from his website. So he does give the website during the interview, and I will also put the links for all of these in the show notes, so you can just check them out there. Um, But the website, if you want to take a look, is... um, so the engagement guide, if you want to take a look, is barkplayteach.com forward slash the hyphen engagement hyphen guide. So that's barkplayteach.com forward slash the hyphen engagement hyphen guide. So um, do take a look at that. So it's a great little free uh, booklet you can download. And I also wanted to have Nick on the show because on his own podcast, he had an episode relatively recently where he chatted with a balanced trainer and he tried to navigate around the collision of these two worlds, um, himself using positive reinforcement largely and um, the person he was interviewing was using balanced training. And if you want to check it out on his podcast, it's episode 47 and the interview is with Pat Stewart. So this idea of trying to navigate these um, overlaps between the two worlds, as it were, is something that I want to be able to do on this podcast as well. There are parts of traditional or mainstream gundog training across the globe which do not involve the use of force. And we need to be able to identify these bits and pieces so we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so we can sort of integrate the bits that 
don't involve force and that do involve positive reinforcement into what we do. So as a sort of preparation for maybe what's to come, I thought it'd be good to have a chat with Nick on this subject as well. And lastly, I should just add that we did get cut off a few times, which I think was down to my computer and the connection. Um, The last time we got cut off, we both had to go anyway. So the interview is kind of missing a thank you very much and goodbye kind of a conclusion. But I think we got most of the good stuff. Um, Anyway, here is Nick. Welcome, Nick, to Hold the Line podcast. Thank you very much for coming on the show. And I feel like I'm interviewing a celebrity um, because I've been a big listener of your podcast for a long time now. um, And it's a bit weird to be actually talking to you instead of just listening to you. So welcome on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. And that's extremely kind of you to say. Uh, It's kind of strange, you know, this whole, the whole like celebrity within a niche thing is relatively new to me. And for the longest time, I was just like everyone else, you know, I was just doing the dog training and, and no one knew who I was. And now sometimes I go to conferences and people will come up to me and they'd be like, I listen to your podcast. And it's a little bit strange. And I heard you speak about this, Joe. <laughs> I heard you speak about this, Joe, where you were saying sometimes it, when you're doing podcasts, it feels like no one's listening. You're just in yes. a room and you're recording. And you, I know, obviously, you know that people listen to the podcast, but it's hard to materialize until someone actually comes up to you and says, I listen to the to the podcast. So yeah, right. it's all a bit You're new giving me some I'm starting to think I've got this to look forward to, or maybe not to look forward to in the future, people coming up and telling me that they've been listening. Um Yes, but you're not a Gundong trainer, exactly. So we have to sort of say that and put that out there at the beginning. But you did actually have a Labrador called Chester. Have I got that right? Yeah, I still have him. He's eleven in August. So right. yes, I still got him. And have you done any Gundog training ever? with him um no i've not done any gun dog training with him although when i was a teenager i used to just mess around and you know we'd do little retrieves and stuff but it, it wasn't um anything serious although when i did my degree at university i was just surrounded by gun dog trainers i don't know why but it just happened to be that that year almost everyone was a gun dog trainer so i would sit and uh and listen to gun dog conversations for hours on end yeah, I seem to remember you interviewed Jane Arden some time ago, and I remember listening to your podcast when you interviewed her, and you talked about that experience of learning with her. Yeah, I Jane. Do was, I have that right? Yes, yeah. Jane. Jane was actually one of my lecturers as well. So, um, and I love Jane's stuff. You know, I've been on her um, workshops and stuff since, so I know Jane pretty well. And uh, as far as gun dog training go, well, as far as dog training goes, uh, she's a really awesome uh, role model. All right. Well. One of the big things I wanted to talk to you about on the podcast is engagement, because I know that's something which is your something you take a special interest in. And you actually have a downloadable engagement booklet on your website. Is that is that right? Yep. Um, So I know that's something you're very interested in. And it's obviously something that's really important for gundog work, because when we're doing gundog work, we're outside around loads of distractions. And a major problem that people have is just not being able to engage their dog so they can't even begin to teach the dog anything unless a dog can pay enough attention to them to be able to learn so that's what engagement's all about and I know that's something that you're interested in so I wanted to get you on the show to talk about it yes so usually interested in it (laughs) yeah so so to start with I wondered if you could tell us what what you think we should not do because one of the things I see is people sort of nagging their dogs and you know and pestering their dogs to try and get their attention is that something that you see as well um, not to be honest, Joe, I don't really, but I think that's probably because we come from different angles. So the majority of the time I'm working with uh, pet dog owners 
And their biggest problem is they haven't been interacting with their dogs at all, right? So I think maybe from when, when someone has an interest in gun dog training, I would imagine they're doing that nagging because they know they want the dog's attention. Whereas a lot of the time, right. people were so focused on... Uh, I'm already diverging, but um, they're so focused on the result, right? They're so focused on they want the recall. They want uh, loose lead walking or whatever it is mm. that they completely forget that they haven't even got the dog's attention in the first place, right? And if you don't have the dog's attention you have no chance of getting anything else. So what I see the majority of time where people have gone wrong is that they go on dog walks and they pay no attention to their dogs at all. They're just playing on their phone uh, or they're just, you know, chatting to other dog owners. That's a classic, right? Like they'll meet up at the park and they just chat to other dog owners for half an hour and let the dogs play. And then they're surprised when the dog learns that they're not a source of anything interesting. They're not a source of reinforcement or rewards. Um, they're just something else in the environment to be ignored. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gun Dog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. Right. So it's a little bit like the dog learns what is reinforcing and where to look to for those reinforcers. Yeah, dogs gravitate to what is reinforcing. So if the person isn't reinforcing, then they're going to go and find reinforcement in the environment. And that's where you get dogs that are constantly looking to go and play with other dogs or they're looking, uh, they're hunting all of the time because um, the person isn't paying any attention to them. And they just completely begin to ignore the presence of the person entirely. Um, I heard you, Joe, on a podcast talking about um, purposefully habituating dogs. And this is they've kind of done the opposite by accident where they've habituated their dog to them. Right. Like they've just the dogs right. just began to completely ignore them because they've become a stimulus that isn't important. Right. Right. I think that's quite... I mean, that, I can see huge similarities in what you've described there and, and gun dog training. So I guess the only difference would be that people would be trying to get the dog's attention in order to be able to train them to do stuff. So, you know, trying to put food on their nose to get their head up from the ground, trying to 
you know, say, look at this, look at this, watch me, watch me, come on, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so they become like an annoying fly kind of buzzing around the dog's head, which the dog just disengages uh-huh. from even more. Um, and so there's probably that on top of what you've described. But but I agree this this idea of like walking the dog and the dog just getting more and more into the environment and less and less into the person is is a big problem for particularly the hunting breeds of gun dogs like spaniels or HPRs or any dogs which are bred to hunt because they're bred to naturally want to go and explore the environment. Um, and so I think it's a particularly problem there. So it seems that you kind of recognize that this was a an important topic and there was a kind of a need to focus on it some more. And what so what drew you particularly to this as something to focus on rather than anything else? Yeah, when I when I became a professional dog trainer, I started out doing what everyone does. You know, I, when the client came to me and they said, I have a recall training problem, we taught recalls. And I did that for probably, I would say about two years, I was doing it the kind of really traditional way of just just teaching recalls and stuff. But I started to get get frustrated because I felt like there was something missing, right? We would end up with these dogs that had great recalls, but they would run back to their owner and then just immediately run off again. And that, you know, that doesn't work, right? Like there is just no value in that. So what we needed to do, what was missing was the fact that the people, uh, the dogs didn't want to be around their owners in the first place. And I always say, when when you are approached with these dogs, People think they have one problem that uh, is the dog doesn't want to come back, but actually they have two problems. The dog doesn't want to come back, but they don't want to be with the dog owner in the first place. Right. And if you Mm. just solve the the first problem, you still end up with a walk that isn't desirable at all. So we need to have the engagement and um, we need to have, we need to train our dogs to, to want to be near us and you do that by rewarding those behaviors. I mean, we get into that anyway, Joe, but um, I think that sometimes people don't realize that the way that you get engagement is exactly the same as you would train any other behavior. You identify the behaviors that you want, right? The dog being around you, the dog looking at you um, or whatever that might be, and you reinforce those behaviors. And of course, anything you reinforce is going to happen more often. Right. And, and dog trainers have completely got that concept when it comes to training sits, downs, stays, you name it. But when it comes to uh, making people more interesting, that's as far as it goes. Right. It's that classic line, be more interesting to your dog. And it's like, well, that is true, but it's not very helpful. It's like if if you had a hundred meter coach and you said to them, I want to run a hundred meters in 10 seconds. And their answer was run faster. It's like, well, yeah, that's that's true. But that doesn't help me at all, right? Like, I need some actual yeah. practical, like, tell me what to do. Um, so so where I try to fill in that blank is I try to help people know what to do, um, where I think that a lot of the time, um, if people even realize that engagement is of value, there is just this vague advice out there and, and people don't know how to actually practically be more interesting, especially in the face of, um, a world that is so distracting for their dogs. Right. So one of the things I think you're saying there is that, um, you know, you compared it to sits and downs of behaviors that we've asked for from the dog. Whereas I think engagement, it sounds like is something that we want the dogs to offer us. So we want them to almost be saying, hi, what should we do together? And looking at us as if they're offering us this behavior rather than us trying to cue it from the dog. Would that 
be, be the case, do you think? In the beginning. So in the beginning, yeah, you're right. You're, sh- you're shaping it as much as possible. So anytime, or you're even capturing it, you might say, you know, so anytime your dog is um, checking in with you, you're marking and rewarding that. That's just like uh, step A, right? Like that's just getting the ball rolling. Um, as you get further into engagement and you want to uh, get a little bit more advanced, then you can create environmental cues, which I think is where engagement really becomes quite magical. So, for example, if you have a dog that is really distracted by other dogs, then what you can teach them is every time you see other dogs, that is the cue that you should pay attention to me. Right. So now right. what you've done is you've created you've you've made these environmental distractions which are just hell on earth at the moment, and you've turned them to your advantage. You've turned them into a cue to engage with you. And I just think that that is the genius of engagement. Once you get to those advanced levels and you start making the distractions, the cue to pay attention to you, that's really special. Right. I mean, that reminds me a little bit of something Leanne said um, when I interviewed her, I think last last week or a couple of episodes ago, whenever it was, um, when a bird flushes, she's taught her dogs to turn and look to her for the ball to be thrown as a reinforcer. And so the bird flushing does not become this cue to chase. It becomes a cue to turn and look at her and engage with her instead for her reinforcement. So it's kind of the same thing, really. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah, it sounds like Leanne has done that with uh, birds flushing. And in my my job, when I'm training pet dog owners, we do that with the kind of stuff that they would come across, you know, uh, whether that's other dogs, cyclists, uh, you name it, right? Um, so it's exactly the same thing. And actually, when I was, uh, when I kind of had my own little epiphany about engagement, all of the information that I could find, of which there is very little anyway, um, was from people that were involved in sports in some way. And I think that that becomes out of necessity, right? If you're trying to control a dog that has a high drive to chase uh, an animal and you're trying to control that drive, well, then I think that engagement is a very natural thing to fall into. So if you had someone coming to you with, say, let's just say a a working Cocker Spaniel and their dog is not very focused on them at all. um, And, you know, if they go out into a rural environment with the dog, the dog just wants to put its nose down the floor and sniff and investigate smells and is really not offering them very much engagement Mm -hmm. at all. Um, How what would you do with that? client and how would you begin things for people in that situation yeah right I come across this kind of thing uh, all of the time anyway especially now that I think that there are a lot of people getting working line dogs that are in for way more than they bargained for right so Mm, we do see that kind of thing a lot and I think that all of the rules of dog training apply right so if we have a dog that is distracted in a rural environment not giving their owners any engagement we have to do what we already know which is we set the dog up for success right so we go to an area where there's maximum chance of the dog paying attention to us and then we start to reward check-ins right so a check-in is when your dog looks at you so what i do usually if i'm approached in that kind of situation then i would say for a week on a walk, I want you to reward every single time your dog checks in. Um, so um, with that... And would that be on the on the lead or off the lead? Or? On the lead, because if you have no engagement, then you have no business letting your dog off the lead, right? Okay, <laughs> so know? on a long line or on a, on a six-foot lead? Or? Uh, normally on a... Well, it depends on the dog, right? So, um, but normally on a long line, because most people's goal is to get their dog off leash, 
right? So we want to replicate mm -hmm. that um, to some degree, and the long line does that quite nicely. So with that hypothetical dog, though, if it's really distracted when you go into a field, then maybe you choose to do it in the car park, right? Or you, you find an area which is slightly less distracting, you build up the check-ins there until we have a reasonable level of engagement, and then we start to go to more distracting environments. I think that where a lot of people get this wrong is they're trying to dive in the deep end straight away, right? And you just hmm. wouldn't do that with any other type of training, right? Like, you know, yeah. do you know they do that... Um, uh, fun dog shows and stuff they do that thing where there's the like there's an alley full of like and it's got distractions like toys and treats and burgers and stuff yeah like temptation alley yes, or something right yeah. you wouldn't teach recalls in temptation alley right like that would just be no. obviously you wouldn't do that um but there's a weird thing with engagement again where people don't think about this kind of thing so you might be trying to train engagement in like the woods right it's just like you're putting the dog hmm. in a really difficult situation to be able to learn these skills. You need to teach them in a less distracting environment and then build up. Yeah, it's a bit like people are lumping rather than splitting. In fact, I think actually a lot of people haven't even realized that engagement is a behavior. You know, it's like that. I think that's why they're start trying to get their dog to sit or lie down or walk at heel or or retrieve or whatever it is. You know, they haven't even realized that there's something they have to train before all of that. Yeah, preach, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> for sure yeah this is the, my utter frustration yeah people don't realize that engagement is a behavior like anything else and all of the rules of dog training that we apply to everything else applies to engagement as well um so just that realization is huge right like that i think maybe it's something to do with the cue like people think dog training is about telling the dog what to do and so how can there be this thing where we just watch what the dog does and we re mark and reinforce that when we haven't told them to do that. So mm -hmm. I think maybe that's why it doesn't occur to them. Yeah, well, it just comes back to anything we reinforce is going to happen more often, right? So if we like having engagement on walks, then we should be reinforcing that more often, right? And that doesn't yeah. mean that you have to shove sausage in your dog's face every two seconds. It just means that um, we need to be reinforcing that at a reasonable rate in order for it to continue. Right. So that might be uh, tennis balls, whatever you whatever your choice of reinforcement is. But you can also increase criteria as your engagement advances. Right. So, like I said, uh, your first week, you might be rewarding every single check in. But, you know, a couple of months down the line, you might only be rewarding check ins um, which are cued by a distraction. So you just right. increase criteria um, like you would with anything else. Right. And so then you'll get people saying things like, my dog won't go away or my dog won't stop looking at me. Yeah, I love it when they say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like, yeah, first, when you first uh, meet someone and they say, oh, my God, my dog just pays no attention to me. They don't listen to me. And then at the end of the first week where they've rewarded every check in, they're like, my dog won't stop looking at me. He just he's, he's constantly, at, you know, it's, it's really funny to see that turnaround. But okay, so how do you solve that? Well, you reinforce less often, right? And then the behavior will happen less often. So you in increase your criteria. So then maybe we're only going to uh, reward check-ins that are cued by a distraction or in a distracting environment or something like that. Right. And you just find the balance and you find the balance in your reinforcement. And also, I think that interactive, the interactivity of the reinforcement makes a big difference to the level of engagement. So for example, if I play tug with my dog or I play some kind of game with them, then that tends to boost 
um, engagement more than just handing the dog a treat would, right? Or even with treats, one of the, my biggest frustrations with treats as well is people think that the only thing you can do with a treat is just post it into the dog's mouth. It's like there are so many more things you can do with a treat. I mean, you I would imagine that you've seen this yourself. One of my realizations with Spaniels is Spaniels generally, obviously I'm making a huge generalization, tend to much prefer a treat when it's thrown into long grass, right? They have they get the chase, they get the, the chase, they get to yeah. find it, you know, they get to use their nose to find it. So I found working with a lot of Spaniels, I can increase the value of my reinforcement just by throwing it into some long grass. Right. Yeah. But right. anything, any activity that's linked with a reinforcement tends to create uh, a higher level of engagement. But so you just have to know these things and then tinker with it to find that balanced uh, level of engagement that works for you. And another thing with that as well is you're not always going to want the same level of engagement, right? Like if you're out on a shoot, I would imagine you want a higher level of engagement than you would if you are just going for a stroll, you know? And, and so you, that all comes back to that reinforcement, right? You just, yeah. you adjust your levels of re, your rate of reinforcement um, dependent on environment. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'm thinking that one difference might be that it sounds like for you with pet, pet owners that once you've got that engagement, because they don't want the dog staring at them all the time, whilst they take a walk or whilst they're out exercising their dog, then you're going to reinforce less often yeah allow the dog to go to the environment more and to get some reinforcement from the environment whilst also getting some occasionally from the person walking them, the handler. Whereas maybe for people doing a dog sport or for people doing gun dog work, once they've got that engagement, that dog, which won't, you know, stop looking at them, then that's the time when you can then start to work. So then you can start, well, train, yeah. you can then start to work on your heel work or whatever it is you're working on. Cause you've got that, that focus from the dog that you need to be able to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. I think there are, times when you need high levels of engagement and um and yeah you're just when you switch to working you're just increasing criteria you're just saying now you know now i've got the now i've got a bit of engagement from you i need you to do a bit more to earn the reward right whether that's a retrieve or whatever it is or whether it's heel work or or whatever i think it's just important that people realize that engagement is something they have to think about because you know this was um, part of my realization was trying to train a dog. I remember trying to train a dog to sit that was just not even interested in me. And someone saying to me, Nick, you're asking the dog for to sit and um, he's not even like looking at you. Do you know what I mean? So if it, it's kind of like if we think back to like a kid in a classroom, if they're staring out the window, I'm not going to expect them to be able to answer some complex maths question. Right. I first, hmm. my first task needs to be to get them paying attention to the lesson again. Um, and once, yeah. once we've built up the level of engagement and built it into a habit for the dog, then we don't have to think about it so much. But I think that there are just a yeah. lot of people that are at that point where they have very little engagement at all. I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The 
sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend. And I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me, though, because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force-Free Gundog Training and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, it's almost like engagement is part of every behavior, every other behavior. So it's almost like sit is put your bum on the floor and connect with me and heel is walk level with my left leg and be connected to me and so it's that connected bit which is built into all the other behaviors and it's there kind of we assume that it's there even though we haven't often separately trained it which is what engagement training is all about separately training this bit well it's just the foundation right the dog can't ask can't do what you're asking if they're not even paying attention to what you're asking where they just can't do it. Right. But to what you were saying, you know, um, Charles Duhigg, who wrote a book called The Power of Habit, he talks about keystone habits. Keystone habits are one habit that you establish that has uh, impact on the rest of your life. So, for example, if you start eating healthy, then there's a good chance that you're also going to start exercising, you're going to feel better, and it's going to have like a knock-on effect in the rest of your life. And I really feel like if we can teach people to engage with their dogs it's a keystone habit. You know, when I started doing that with pet dog owners, things like their recall, their loose lead walking, just their general um, obedience, if you want to call it that, improved. And we didn't work on it because it's a keystone habit. Once the dog's paying attention to the person, more often things just start going right. You know, um, I had um, Steve Mann on my podcast, who's uh, the founder of the IMDT. And he was talking about, competing on a game show and he was teamed up with brian blessed and he was uh he had to brian had to teach his dog some task or whatever and he said the only thing he said to brian is just reward the dog for looking at you right and it's like if you can get that right if you can just get that right everything else starts to become so much easier yeah. So am I right that you've got a book that you're writing about engagement? Is that right? <laughs> it's funny. Do you know what? Everyone asks me about this and um, I'm writing it at the most painfully slow pace that I, I every time mm. I feel guilty because I, I occasionally get messages from people asking me when it's coming out. Um, and the thing is, I've written the first draft, um, but you will know because obviously you've written a book. Um, 
<laughs> I don't know. Painful. I, I, Painful. I'm just a perfectionist, you know. I just want it to be so perfect because to me, yeah, you know, it's the first book I've ever written. I'm really passionate about this topic. So yeah, I am writing a book. I need to hurry up and finish it. Well, you finished the first draft, so it's kind of finished. You're just tweaking it. Yeah, well, I finished the first draft and then I was like, I hate this. <laughs> I need to completely redo it. So yeah, um, yeah, I am working on it, but it's just a painful slow pace. But no doubt it will be plastered over my social media when I do finally finish it. Right, but you do also you do have a a book that people can download. Am I right with that from your website? Yeah, so on engagement. Yeah, so I have a a brief introduction to engagement, which is free that people can download, and they can get that at www.barkplayteach.com/slash/the-hyphen-engagement-hyphen-guide, and that's just a free PDF that they can download. It's just a kind of brief introduction to the idea of engagement and just some tips on getting started really right well that's the engagement subject that i wanted to talk to you about the other subject that i wanted to talk to you about on the show today was the idea of trying to talk to and with people who are quote unquote on the other side um meaning people who use aversives in trading whether they use lots of aversives or whether they consider themselves balanced trainers and just use a few aversives so I want to talk to you about that because I heard one of your podcast episodes. In fact, I made a note. It was episode 47 with Pat Stewart, um, which you called Bridging the Divide, which I thought was a good name. Yeah, Pat is a fellow podcaster as well. Oh, right. Yeah. So when I heard that, I thought, no, this is a really important thing to talk about, particularly for gun dog training, mm-hmm. because so many of us have still are used in gun dog training, unlike maybe some other dog sports where they're not so much. So, So we're kind of forced as it were to engage with <laughs> use that word engage again in this context, <laughs> <That's okay>. but <laughs> yeah to engage with the other side um so yeah so i feel like for you though rather than being about gun dog training for you i get the sense that there's more of an interest in protection sports is that right and is that your you know the area where you're kind of negotiating the other side as it were um Yes, but not really by design. Um, I don't really know. Well, I probably do know why. It's because I I certainly have an interest in protection sports, or I didn't really call bite work sports. Um, Just kind of a personal interest. I've done a bit of bite work, messing around and stuff, and I've always found it to be quite exciting and quite fun when it's done in a reward-based way. You know, if you're you're with the right people, it can be a real laugh. Um, But I think that the sad thing about that world is a lot of it is done in a very punitive way. Um, so I guess mm. by accident really, well, you know, it's not, I keep saying by accident, but really it's, I, you know, I talk to a lot of people, I talk to a lot of people that um, are involved in protection sports and I just feel like there's a, a bit of an attitude of you can't do it in a reward based way. And I find that really intriguing, um, especially because there are people that are reward-based that um, certainly claim to be able to do it. And I have no reason to disbelieve them. You know, I've I've had long discussions with a lot of these people and I feel like at this point, some, you know, in order for them to be lying to me, it would have to be some kind of Illuminati conspiracy, you know, like it's, it's, Hmm. uh, it's a bit strange. Um, But anyway, the, the opposition um, in terms of the, the punitive um, trainers insist that this is impossible. So, yeah, I, I enjoy talking to them and 
There's the same thing in Gundog. Gundog training, yeah. those people who use aversives will insist that they're absolutely necessary and they have to be there and you can't train a dog using food. It's not going to work and blah, blah, blah. What happens when you put up a rabbit and think, you know, things like this, they just can't imagine it. And therefore they think it's not possible. Um, I mean, for me, one of the hardest things is separating out the people and their personalities mm-hmm. and you know, just getting on in terms of two people talking together yeah. and how they train their dogs. Because often they'll be in events and, you know, there'll be people that I have a chat with. I really like them. They seem to like me. We seem to talk well together. Um, I wish them good luck. They wish me good luck. We'll catch up and say, how, how did that test go for you? And, you know, things like that. I might have lunch with them or something. And then you'll see them like jerking their dog around or something a little bit later. And it's really hard, There's the conflict between these two to try to, I don't know, to, to reconcile that and to know what to do with it. Do you, do you have the same experience? Um, I, I very much try to form uh, friendships with people that come from any ideology. Um, and I think that the key to that is in not trying to convince people all the time. Because if you start a relationship with someone by trying to convince them that all of their beliefs are wrong, that is very unlikely to uh, go very well. So... Um, I've really enjoyed talking to people of all different beliefs. And I think that there, there are things to be learned from people that uh, don't necessarily agree with you. And I know you feel like that as well, Joe. Um, so um, I, I think that sometimes it can be awkward if you hang out with people that train in a very aversive way. I guess it depends on how aversive. And I don't mean that in terms of like my... Um, belief that it's wrong i mean that in the sense of there is a verse there are people that train with aversion and then there are people that train with more what is more akin to abuse you know um so i don't really tend Hmm. to hang out with people that are what i would say abusing their dog you know like i've i've been around trainers that really beat the hell out of dogs and that to me is not something i want to be around as much as they were lovely people and I'm sure that they thought they were doing it for the right reasons. That's where I start to become uncomfortable, but I can hang out with people that do corrections, uh, use electric collars, dependent on how they're being used. Um, and yeah, I tried, I do my best to separate it. I know what you mean. It's not always possible. That's really what it comes down to. Um, Hmm. yeah, it's hard. It's easier said than done, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I try to preserve the friend, the friendship, but avoid talking about dog training or, you know, mm. detailed, how would you do this stuff? Yeah. Um, well, I also make a joke out of it yes. as well, which I think is important. The ability to laugh at yourself. And I'll often say, like, I'll make a joke out of it. You know, I'll be like, well, this is how I would do it. But I'm just like a tree hugging hippie, you know, like I'm, you don't have to listen to me. This is just, how, if someone asked me how I would do it, and they're a friend, and they train with aversives, then I would just tell them how I did it. Um, but they don't have to follow me. And I, I would make it quite clear, you, do, you don't have to do it this way. You know, this is just what has worked for me. Um, but if you do give it a shot, let me know. Let me know how it goes. And I think that if, conversely, if you stop trying to convince people that your way is the best, and you have belief in the results that you're getting, oftentimes that will convince people you know, it's like the harder you chase, the less likely you are to get the thing. You know, sometimes when when you hmm. uh, just have conversations with people, form relationships, and they see that that um, you're actually very effective in the, in your training, then they want to learn more of that. 
and then this then they go on to become more reward-based, even if it's just in a little way. So in this idea of kind of um, making it into a joke and, you know, saying that you're just a tree-hugging hippie, <laughs> it's, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, it's sort of like you're trying to reduce your threat to them in their eyes. You're trying to say, I'm not challenging you. I'm not really a, a threat uh-huh. to you. I'm putting myself down a little bit to mitigate the the threat that I might present to you with what I'm saying so that you don't feel too challenged by. Well, I guess if, yeah, I don't really think about it like that. That's, I guess if maybe, (laughs) but um, I generally, I just say it because it's true. I don't, um, you know, yeah, I don't know. I've never really thought about that on a deep level. I just, it just tends to, (laughs) I've just been reinforced with that show. (laughs) That just tends to work. Um, Yeah. That's an interesting way of looking at it for sure. Like I said, it just tends to take the tension out of the situation because people think, I think you're right. You know, people, when you start having a conversation and they know that you are from the other camp, like they're preparing for an argument, right? And if you make it very clear that you're not any, you are, you're not any threat, you know, you are just um, here to have a bit of a joke and a laugh and share some dog training stories. Um, then that does tend to be quite effective. I mean, because it does, that is how they would experience it. So they would feel that we are judging them. I think that's what's behind it. Is yeah. that there's the belief that we, that even if we don't say anything, even if we don't say anything about what they're doing, just the fact that we have chosen not to use aversives uh-huh. and without, or the methods which, which they use yeah. is in itself a sort of, you know, indictment of what they're yes. doing. And yeah. So even by that, there's a little bit of judgment, mm-hmm. and I think that they probably take offence well, to that. The problem is, um, Joe, the judgment is there most of the time, mm, right? Like, yes, I honestly, I'm not judging them, right? And I don't think that I genuinely am just there to to be their friend, right? Like, I think that that's the thing. It's just being authentic, right? Like, I think that if you're going into a relationship with someone saying uh thinking in your head that you're superior to them or that they're unethical and what they do is abusive and all blah 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 and you're all tied up with that it's very hard to have a a good conversation with someone i think you do have to come to the table as equals right and as just two people having a chat instead of um all this emotional baggage the hard thing about that though is if you yourself with your own dogs or your own clients have decided not to train using aversives then presumably you've made that ethical call mm. you mean you've made it so even if you don't go preaching mm. to these people that that you've kind of already made that call and presumably they're going to know about that somehow um yes but uh, uh, so yeah yeah well there's a few things there i mean firstly one thing that really irks me is when we have these conversations, it always comes down to ethics. And when we talk about ethics, firstly, we have to understand that ethics are subjective. So everyone has their own ethics and that's perfectly okay for the most part, right? As long as they're not trying to kill people or anything. Um, and secondly, what the conversation is just completely wrong, right? Like why are we, why is the conversation always about ethics when we have a methodology it's just more effective right like it's it's almost like we're hmm. we're coming at it from a losing position when we have the best hand it's like it just completely just 
boggles me, right? It's like it's like we're pretending. Yeah. It's like no, the reward based training is actually more effective. Like we're not hiding anything, or at least I'm not, right? Like I'm doing this primarily because it works better, right? Let's just forget ethics for a second. This is actually just a better way to train a dog, right? So right. Once you that's just the first thing, right? Now if you want to get into ethics, that should be like after we've got over the fact that this is a better way of training dogs. Um, and I really think that's quite objective at this point, right? Like if you just look at the science, right? Like the ho- But do you think they would agree with that? No. The people in versus- <laughs> they do. <yeah. laughs> so, so so then we end up disagreeing on something else. Maybe not ethics, but <laughs> the problem with having the ethical discussion is though inherently as you you said yourself joe if you say to someone if you start having an ethical discussion the implication is immediately that they are unethical and what they're doing is cruel right and that's a hard pill to swallow um and it's not even something we have to even go into in the beginning because it's implying that uh, the way that we train dogs is less efficient so let's just start the discussion there well if we're going to have that discussion, I personally, I wouldn't even go into this is better. If I'm having a conversation with someone, I wouldn't even go into this is better or this is worse. I would just, I mean, form relationship first, right? I mean, maybe it's because I work with so many pet dog owners, but oftentimes I'll go to see a pet dog owner that is doing like 10 things wrong, right? Like I don't just list them out for them there and then. We just, one of the primary things you want to do when you do a one-to-one consultation with someone or you do classes or whatever is form relationship. Because if you form relationship with people, then you can, you have the piggy bank, right? Like it's the same with dogs. You know, dogs become reactive and aggressive when they build up a lot of negative uh, emotional responses, a lot of negative experiences. We need to build up positive experiences. We need to form a relationship because then if we do have to have difficult conversations with them, we're more likely to have success. So it depends on what your goal is. So it, it depends on what your goal is, right? Like when, when I'm working with a client, obviously I have to, I'm there to help them improve the behavior of their dog. So there are times where I have to have a difficult conversation with them. But if I'm just trying to be someone's friend, that conversation might never come up, right? Like if I'm just trying to, form a relationship with someone from a, a human perspective right and if right and like you exactly and like you said joe you know if it gets to the point where someone says and i think it does if you're both dog trainers at some point you're probably going to talk about dogs right and it should just be from that equal footing right like oh here's what i'm doing with my dog um and if someone sees that what you're doing is effective then their curiosity is going to be peaked and you can show them what you're working on and by the way, that works both ways because I have learned many awesome things from people that use aversives. Yes, that's a big subject. I mean, I think that's for gun dog training. That is one of the reasons why we have to engage with, you know, people who use aversives is because some of the stuff they're doing doesn't involve aversives and we can take that and we can use it and we can incorporate it into force-free training rather than just throwing the baby out of the bathwater and having to reinvent the wheel from scratch. So, well, I've, I've, yeah, that's why I think it's... I think yeah. that's important for the community at large. I think if you're beginning in dog training, then for sure you have to prioritize. I understand that. Start off with the best or the the material that you feel is going to be the most effective. But once as a community, I think we need to be a little bit more inclusive, a little bit more open to having these discussions and not trying to kill each other all the time. And I think that 
um, on both sides, there has to be an acknowledgement that there are things to learn. Because if you really want to become a better dog trainer, you need to be open to learning things from people that you might not agree with on whole, right? Like there are very few people right. that everyone is going to agree with everything they said, say, right? Like you, yeah. I, I haven't, obviously I, we haven't come across it, Joe, but I'm sure there are things we disagree on right? Like sure, there are plenty of people that listen to my podcast that don't agree with everything that I say. There are certainly people that create content. The almost, I'm never going to agree with everything everyone says, right? Like there has to be a point where you become comfortable with that and you take, um, you take from it what you can gain value from. I think so. I think there's two different things. I think on the one hand, why have these conversations? You know, if you're really friendly with someone, then maybe you can have these conversations. But why try and convert people who use a versus? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of energy that's being invested in that and you're probably not going to be uh -huh. successful. But the other side of it is engaging people who use a versus because of what we can take from them and what we can learn, not about aversives, but about the things that they're doing which don't involve yeah. aversives and how we can, you know, incorporate those mm -hmm. bits. So it's kind of like taking yeah. what we need from yeah. the relationship and not trying to impose our values yeah, on them. Yeah, well, I mean, to the first point... Um... To the first point, I wouldn't. I think you're right. I don't. I don't think you should go in trying to convert people. I just think that's a terrible strategy. I think post content about good dog training, or if you don't post content, show train your dog. Just train your dog to a, a high level, and people will be interested in that, and they'll want to learn how you did it. And that's the best way to um, to influence people is through results to your second yes. point i think just forget about the labels right forget about you belong to the force uh whatever you want to call it training camp you belong to the reward-based camp forget that just find people that are really good at dog training and pay attention to them right and then just take the good or take the stuff that you find works or you're happy with from an ethical standpoint or whatever you want to do just take the stuff you can gain value from yeah. I mean, because I've learned so much from, but the, the, this is the difficulty. So I've learned lots from um, watching DVDs of uh, US and I should say North American because people in Canada get very offended if I just say US all the time. So North American retriever trainers. Um, and so, you know, I've learned lots from that, from the yeah. drills that they use and the way that they teach the dogs concepts through these drills, but they use lots of aversives. So it's mm -hmm. all e-collar based and it's all force based. Um, and so I took those same drills and just took out the e-collar and just taught the dog to do the drills for positive reinforcement and not to avoid an aversive. So in my eyes, the dog still got the same concept. So I learned a lot, but I had to watch a lot of DVDs where a lot of dogs were very stressed. So you would, you know, dogs yelping when e-collar stimulation is applied and, you know, dogs showing lots of calming signals as they're bringing in the, the, the dummy, the bumper, lots of chomping of the bumper in the dog's mouth because they're really in a lot of conflict at the moment. They know they have to bring it back, but they're also anxious about being up close to the handler and bringing it back. Um, that's been associated with aversive so many times in the past. So I think when you start, sort of know a bit about dog body language and you watch these force-based dvds and force-based trainers it can actually be quite painful and difficult to to watch but i don't think i could have you know run taken those drills and and made them work in a sort of force-free way if i hadn't done that so so i don't know what to say about that really but i can also understand that there's some people who don't want to right. see that sort of stuff and who want to just live in a world where dogs are treated um ethically and humanely and are not you know trained mm -hmm. using aversives and they don't want to know about yeah. any of that and i can sort of see that as well 
So I don't, yeah, I don't know what the conclusion is out of that. It's extremely important, mm-hmm. Joe, that you were open-minded enough to watch those DVDs because what you did was you took the value out of those DVDs, you edited things, changed things to uh, to be better, and then you taught them to loads of other people, right? Like you took the good out of that. And if you were closed-minded and you said, I'm not going to watch this DVD because it's being used by someone that uses aversives, then that value would never have been able to, you would never have been able to pass that on to other people, right? So it's extremely important. And I think that sometimes people are really close-minded to it. And if, like I said, if you're starting out, I understand. If you're someone that is trying to really, it depends what your goal is, doesn't it, really, at the end of the day. Like for me, I really want to be good at this. <laughs> you know, I really want to be, uh, I really want to be the best dog trainer I can. So it does not help my cause to just be close-minded to people that don't agree with everything. I don't agree with everything yeah. they do. Yeah. I mean, you have a really unique experience with this in that you've actually lost out financially, right? Like this has potentially been a big deal for you in that you lost your book deal. And I don't think that many people have had such a um, dramatic experience as you have. Right. So right. W- what's your opinion on this? How, how do you see it? I think that I just, I'm a bit of a magpie really. And it's not just taking things from people who train using aversives. Like I will, you know, I'm interested in lots of different dog sports, not just gun dog work. I'm really interested in lots of different dog sports and learning as much as I can in a sort of wide wide way as widely as possible and then taking what i what i find is useful um into gundog work i think all we can do is try and be generally really good trainers and if we're generally really good trainers and we can apply that knowledge in so many different ways and so i think that's that's kind of how i approach the aversive thing as well like if there's stuff that people are doing which i can take which isn't aversive then then i'm going to take that does that make sense yeah and there's a really strange thing about the information from aversive trainers which sometimes i get feedback from from people that are award based and they're like uh you know you shouldn't be talking to someone like that you shouldn't be uh watching that kind of material or putting that kind of material out there because you're giving them promotion you know someone might see that and then train their dog in an aversive way and i kind of feel like my audience are adults Right. Like, I don't know about uh, you, Joe, but right. I don't have an appeal. It's not like I'm dealing with children that are so easily influenced. They can't make up their own decisions uh, based on information they're hearing. Right. Mm. And I have a a strong conviction that the way that I train dogs or the way that we as a whole in the reward based community train dogs is more effective. So I really don't feel like I, you know, like earlier you were talking about feeling threatened. Right, like I don't mm. really feel threatened by um, talking to aversive trainers because I have confidence in what we're doing. Right, right. I think that right. It's strike. I don't know. It seems a little bit um, insecure to worry so much about what other people are put the information that other people are posting. Um, it just it strikes me as insecure because it's like yeah, I, we I have got one one of the- sorry. As I say, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast, Nick, mm-hmm. is to talk about this subject because I want to bring some people onto the podcast in the future who may use some aversives. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to grapple with is uh-huh. 
when I'm talking to someone who uses aversives on the podcast and I'm trying to extract from them the things they do that are not aversive, which we can take and use, I'm also aware that they're going to be talking about things that they do, which do involve aversives. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose I'm worried about how that's going to sound to the listeners, listeners out there, um, and whether that's going to sound like they're promoting aversives. And yet I'm not going to want to question them in the interview because then it becomes very combative. Yeah. So I'm just going to let them say their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think that you can question things in a way that isn't threatening, right? So uh, if someone has suggested using some kind of um, aversive for a method, then you might want to just genu- genuinely question that, right? Like, oh, how come you're using that in this setting? You know, see how they answer that, right? Try to dig a little deeper, right? That's, mm. that's what I would suggest. I think that's the role of a good interviewer. You know, you dig a little bit deeper on what people are saying and you should do that whether you agree with what they're saying or not, right? Like ideas need to be, um, you need to dig deeper on ideas to figure out whether they're right or not. And if you truly, yes. if you truly believe that there are more efficient ways of doing stuff, then on closer inspection, these ideas aren't going to hold up. Yeah, but at some point I'm going to back off. So I'm quite yeah, open to sort of absolutely. saying, you know, have you thought about this? And then they're going to come back and answer why that why this is necessary. Yeah. And I'm not going to then yeah. come back again and no, no, you know, no, no, you don't want argue to argue it further. So yeah, yeah, so yeah, you don't want to turn the whole thing into into an argument. And also, you can lay your cards on the table when you bring someone on to be a guest. You can just make it clear that you are a reward based trainer, and you're trying to reach out. You're not. This isn't any kind of combative interview you're not trying to catch anyone out um but the way that you do things might naturally be a little bit different and what would be cool i think you can do i think you can do this with aversive trainers you have an honest conversation about this say hey look you know we're reward based here we love what you're doing um but we're not on board with it entirely can you uh is there a way that you can do that that doesn't involve the aversive right right like that's a great question yeah Yes. Sometimes though, there's a whole language issue though, because they, you know, you, you talked about this a bit when you interviewed Pat, yeah. um, the whole sort of, I don't know what words and terms he used, but yes. for example, um, retriever training in North America has got things like suction and pressure and attrition uh-huh. and sit, Nick sit and, um, just forced to pile like the names which all the drills get and so yes, sure. yeah like in the drills get abbreviated so there's like online forums where forced to pile will become ftp uh-huh. and if you're like trying to read all this stuff for the first time you're like what does any of this even mean it's like some sort of alien language <laughs> and it almost has to all be translated and then you have a whole translation issue because the way that they would describe what they're doing is not necessarily the same way that you would describe what you're doing. Yeah, so. absolutely. Sometimes, I mean, Susan Friedman talks about that. You know, you have to be able to define your terms. And if you suspect that they might be saying something that uh, is, you know, you might be arguing different things based on the same terms, then you have to uh, clarify, right? So what do you mean by aversive, right? Like, or I think I did this on the interview with Pat, right? I'd be like, here's what I mean when I'm saying aversive. Is that what you mean? Right? And oftentimes you'll find that they have a completely different definition to um, their term than you do. And you need to make sure you're on an equal footing on that front because otherwise you can spend a whole hour arguing about something and realize that you're arguing about two things that aren't even the same thing, right? Yes. Well, 
I think that we're going to have to bring today to a close. So thank you very much for your time, Nick, and for talking to me today. It's been really interesting to talk to you. The time's just flown by. Um, I feel like we could talk for another two hours. I've got so much more to talk about. Um, <laughs> so thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, yeah, thank you. Okay, thanks so much for having me on, Joe. Hold the line. So it's quite funny what happened at the end there because um, Nick couldn't hear me thanking him. I could hear him, but he couldn't hear me. And so I just typed to him and I said, Nick, just say thank you. Um, and so then he said, thank you. And I just pasted it on the end. So he couldn't actually hear me thanking him. But Nick, you can hear me now. I'm sure you're listening to this. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It was brilliant to speak with you. And and really, I think we could have talked for like three more hours at least. Um, there's so much more to talk about. Um, so thank you very, very much for coming on and for your time everybody else please do um, subscribe to me on itunes and give me five stars on itunes or stitcher and i will be back next week with another exciting episode of hold the line